0: Well, this week we're going to continue where we left off last week. I wasn't able to finish all the what I wanted to cover on the second lesson, which was uh, the organization and leadership of the um, early church fathers or the early church after the New Testament was written. And um, so I'd like to continue where I left off. And uh, So let me pray and then we'll summarize what we talked about last week and then we'll get into uh, the rest of the notes. Father, we are uh, grateful for our heritage, we're grateful for um, how you have used the um, people of history to be able to be an example for us, and also in many ways we stand on their shoulders because of their sacrifice and uh, the giving of their lives, that they um, were willing to stand up for the sake of the truth. and. and because of it, we hold a Bible in our hands. We are able to um, understand and maintain some solid Christian truths that have been um, abandoned over years. And yet, because of many of these faithful men and women who have studied these things and stood for these things, um, we are able to continue on in in knowing Your truth. We pray that the most important thing um, that we do is to understand Your Word and understand that it is the only source of truth. And while we can gain value from these early church leaders, we recognize that they are fallible and uh, and at times they do um, abandon some solid truths. And so, um, we pray that You'd help us to rest most of all in Your Scripture knowing that it is Truth, pray that you'd sanctify us by it, and uh, send your Spirit. Now we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, what was the practice of the early church? The early churches after the the, uh, the apostles had died and gone. What, how did the worship practices develop? How do we get the sort of practices that we do today? Um, things like singing and um, and taking up an offering, and preaching, and uh, and fellowship, and so on. Where do we where do those come from? Well, those uh, those uh, certainly were established in the in the early church that we read about in Acts, and uh, and so it's not a surprise that that these churches following the apostles would pick up many of the same things, including the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, part of the problem, though, was, as we talked about last week, some of them um, took an errant view on the Lord's Supper and on baptism. We talked a little bit about that on both of those. And uh, we also spent quite a bit of time talking about what an ordinance is and why we should have ordinances, which um, when I say ordinances, I'm talking about the two that we observe in our church, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, other churches, we talked uh, about last week have more than that, like some have foot washing. The Catholics have five more than us and um, believe that those are a requirement to, deserve, to observe in, in the local church. Uh, however, it seems to me that, that there are four qualifications based on what I understand from uh, my seminary professor, Dr. McCune. And, and those are authorization by the Lord Jesus Christ in order for it to be an an ordinance, authorization by the Lord Jesus Christ, a command to follow that ordinance for the church, which you'll get in either the Gospels or the Epistles, and then a symbol of saving faith is the third thing, a symbol of saving faith. So, does the baptism picture something? And um, does the Lord's Supper picture something for us? And and obviously, we would say absolutely. And then the fourth thing would be a... A record of those ordinances being practiced in the early church, so um, so those seem to be the qualifications, and and for that reason we we observe too the baptism and the Lord's supper. We moved on after talking about that to uh, we talked briefly about the the the, the development of the sixty six books of your Bible. How did they all come together? When there are other letters that were were known um, at that time to be written by even the Apostle Paul. Like his his uh, letter to... Um, um, I forget the name now. Um, he wrote... I can't remember the name right now, but um, I believe he, there were two other existing letters that were written um, by Paul, but were not included in the canon. So how do we know which books were included? Now, we talked about the Old Testament canon, the 39 books of your Old Testament. Those were pretty well established at that point. Remember, Jesus uh, would often quote from that Old Testament canon. He, he would say that, that, um, that there is the law, the prophet, and the writings. He broke the Old Testament. Jews did at that time. Broke the Old Testament down into three categories. And so, it seems as if the Old Testament canon was already pretty well established. The question was, what about the New Testament canon? Books that you have. How do, how do they come to to um, agree on these? And what we find is is that there's early agreement by the early church fathers on what would be included in the New Testament. And and I gave you three um, rules or measures for for how a book was included as one of the inspired uh, letters from God. Okay, that's basically what they are. They are God speaking through His Servant um, and, a, and inspiring the writings of those um, of those men. And there's there's three standards or three rules. That's what canon means. It means a standard or a rule. Uh, what are they? The first is that the document had to be written by an apostle or a close friend of the apostle. Secondly, it had to agree with the the books that were already confirmed or they're already affirmed as truth, so for example, we read in in second Peter chapter three, I think it was chapter three um, where where peter says um paul paul in his or Paul and the other scripture writings that what Paul has already told you, and so Peter had already acknowledged that there were some inspired writings that they were aware of they were they already should have been included in in the bible that we have today so then when you have a questionable book that comes up like we talked about James or Hebrews then you then you compare that to the writings of the unquestionable unquestionable book the one that's not questioned by anyone and uh, that's the second qualification so first it had to be written by an apostle or a close friend secondly it had to um, agree with the doctrine of the the books that weren't questioned, and then thirdly it had to function as scripture widely throughout the church okay so it wasn't just a couple people in an area decide you know what this looks like this would be a good book they believed that the the Holy Spirit would work in the process of what we call preservation he preserves his word and he would do that through the um the um, obedient church at large would be a good way to, to put that. Now, obviously there were some uh, people who went against this. There were people who made up false writings, what you've perhaps you've heard of the pseudepigrapha. And, um, and so that made it a bit of a challenge. But what we find is that in the first two centuries, they had already decided which 27 books should be included based on their inspiration by God. So that's where we left off um, last week. We we said that we can count on our scriptures; that what we have before us are God's inspired words to us. Now we want to talk about um, leadership structure. And um, like with with many of the early issues in the church, there is going to be some division. There is some relative agreement, but there's also also some. Division and this is what happens in the early um, church. But but initially, after the uh, while the New Testament was being written, you have the office, the two main offices that are set aside for the local church, and that is pastor and deacons. And uh, that would, I believe would be consistent with the New Testament. Same two offices we recognize in our church. However, over time, what happened is is that churches began to develop what are called bishops okay bishop is really another word for a um an overseer or pastor um but these bishops actually functioned a little bit differently they would um oversee the operations of a given location and above them they would have um what they would call presbyters um you hear the word you hear in that word presbyterian um and uh And so now you have a hierarchy of rule. Um, and so all of what the bishop would do is not just care for one church, but he would actually oversee a bunch of churches in a given city that he would be responsible for for watching over them. And in Rome, for example, the bishop performed all the baptisms and uh, personally blessed all the bread and the wine for the lord's supper and um, so they were solely responsible for the finances of the church. The bishop was, and they would eventually contribute to all sorts of scandal because of their um, almost absolute rule. You could say their, their rule that's not check, put it, have any, it doesn't have any checks and balances. Um, so in theory, a given bishop was equal with another bishop of another location. But in practice, that wasn't really the case. You can understand that a bishop over a larger population of Christians would have more power, more weight um, than than one over a smaller group of people. And so, by A.D. 70, which is when Jerusalem fell, um, the... Um, the authority moved to uh Rome it actually moved farther west down into Egypt so you had to, you had a lot of the authority that was in Rome at that time in or in Jerusalem at that time when the temple was destroyed in AD 70 then um, the uh, the power shifts down to Carthage and Alexandria some of these other cities down in in Egypt there um, very early uh as i mentioned rome became very prominent in the empire so um now it's not so much the center being in jerusalem now it's being moved over to rome and their political greatness contributed to their um their church greatness the the reason that their churches flourished was because of uh, a lot had to do with their politics and the way that they um favored the churches in the late 2nd century, Iranius, who was bishop of Lyons, declared that it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with the church of Rome on account of its prominent or preeminent authority. Okay, so this is the late 2nd century and although the papacy doesn't begin at this time, in other words, that the pope is the ruler of the church, that doesn't begin at this time, but you can start to see the seeds that are sown here. When when uh, somebody like this, this Bishop Irania says, all matters of necessity within the church um, have to agree with the church at Rome. Now, what would it be like for our church if someone bring down that san- bring brought down that sanction on us? He said, you cannot believe any differently than church. X some prominent church some somewhere else okay now there is a sense in which we should maintain our orthodoxy our our understanding of the scripture in a right way, but our ultimate authority does not rest in a prominent or preeminent church okay the ultimate authority resides where it resides in the scripture, and so you can see how this um would would actually cause some problems when, when churches were starting to adopt that I guess this is true, that, that, that Rome is the place. And, and this became known as the Roman Catholic Church. Um, however, some people would disagree with this supremacy. They would say, no, that Rome is not the final authority, and so there would be a split between the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Western Orthodox Churches. And there were disputes over um, raw power and uh, differences over style and substance and so on. For example, Victor, who was Bishop Bishop of Rome in the late 2nd century, he threatened to excommunicate the Eastern churches in Asia Minor who disagreed with him on the correct date for Easter. Okay, so he was saying, this is the day that Christ rose from the dead. This is the day on the calendar. And if you disagree with me, and I'm going to excommunicate you. I'm going to remove you from our from our um church. And uh so you, you can see how there's there's uh differences over over power and style and substance. Some of the differences um we have seen. We saw there were some differences with regard to baptism or church leadership. There's all sorts of disputes going on. Um but these types of differences raise some questions for us. Why were there so many differences in the early church? Why weren't they all in agreement? And let me just offer you three reasons why there were differences in the, the, the church that followed the apostles. Okay, when I say early church, I often use the phrase early church when I'm talking about the church in Acts. Talked about in Acts. But what I'm talking about here is actually the church following the apostles, following the writing of the New Testament. So, we're talking about in the 100s and the 200s A.D. um, So, following the death of all the apostles and the writing of the New Testament. Why were there these divisions in those churches? Why why wasn't wasn't there relative agreement? Well, first of all, we have to remember that only Christ is infallible. Only Christ is infallible. So, as sinful people, is it so hard to believe that, that... that even Christians would make mistakes with regard to their understanding of scripture we've seen even in the new testament in galatians for example chapter 2 paul rebukes peter for his potential legalism saying peter you can't force this on these these gentiles you can't force them to live like that that's not where salvation comes from you can't you can't bring up all these rules and force them on them in in that sense peter or Paul rebukes Peter sharply. So, even among believers, there are there are mistakes with regard to understanding the Scripture. So, the first reason that there were divisions was because um, people are, are sinners and they make mistakes and only Christ is infallible. Secondly, we have to also understand that the early church didn't always have the clear guidance of the Scripture. Um, think about think about where they are okay so we we think about the early church often in the same terms as we think about ourselves okay here's how it was the pastor would be up in front of the church with a bible that he owned and each person who came to the church that day would also have a bible that they owned and when they would go away from the church they would they would read their own bible and study it and and find out more about it as, as much as they could But that's not necessarily the case. Now, we do know that 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 was the case in Acts chapter 17 with the Bereans. They studied the Scriptures daily to see if they were from God. Now, for them, many of them only had a copy of the Old Testament, if at all. But you have to remember, first of all, the printing press wasn't available to them. It wasn't easy to make copies of something this large, even if you just wanted the Old Testament. How would you have to get a copy if you wanted one? During that time. Right. You have to hire a scribe who sits down and writes them down word for word. Okay? Now, how much time would it take for you to write out the entire Old Testament word for word? Okay? Hours and hours, weeks and weeks. So, that would require you to pay a lot of money for a person to make a copy of the Scriptures for you. So, I say that the early church wasn't always guided by Scripture because... There were a very limited number of copies. In addition to that, there, not everybody was literate. And um, and uh, although there was some agreement on many of the, the, the core doctrines, there was also much disagreement because people simply were going based on what they had heard from before and then they start to think about those things and then they start to develop, but they're not able to check it against the standard of the Scripture. And that's where um, there can be division and danger. So the first reason is that only Christ is infallible. There's division because only Christ is infallible. Secondly, they didn't have the Scriptures as easily as we do or as as, as uh, readily as we do. Thirdly, many parts of the culture, as you can imagine, were a negative influence on their faith. So whether it be intellectual with regard to all the philosophers, we'll talk about that a little bit later. You have all these philosophers that are trying to argue that That, like I said before, that the body is is evil, but the spirit is good. And so, it doesn't matter how we live in our body as long as we're thinking rightly about God and things like that. Um, There's all sorts of false ideas out there in the intellectual realm. In addition to that, there's all sorts of paganism going on and moral corruption. And so, why would we be surprised that it would not have an effect, the culture would not have an effect on the early Church following the apostles, and so many of these challenges face us today. We sometimes we put too much stock into people, into teachers, instead of into the Word of God itself, and um, and we have to be careful with that. Okay, we have to be careful with saying, "Well, since this person said it, it must be true," or let me let me find out what I believe about that by going to this teacher of the Scriptures. Um, if if I ever come to a point where I am the source of truth for you that that um, that in order for you to understand what's right, you need to check with me then then that that's a problem okay Because my ultimate goal for you is not to get you to believe the way I believe, but it is to point you to the scriptures. It is to point you back to where Christ has revealed himself to us. all right. I'm going to go through these uh, church fathers next, but before I do, let me just take a moment and ask if you have any questions or comments on the early leadership structure and some of the divisions that came about as a result of um, this, this new beginning.
1: Church. And I don't know if they, they did it by looking at the parts of the word that they're reinforced in the relationship, but there's a possibility where that type of yeah. um, wrong thing came, that so there was that separation now, um, and then we have eventually a involved in the Roman Church, which is the bishops and all that stuff, and then
0: the people who are people who teach and the people who are taught Right. Yeah. and in, the, in my study of, of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, I've found it difficult to find out what exactly that is because the scriptures aren't clear on it. But there are many um, there are many options as to what they did. Some people say that the Nicolaitans came from Nicholas, who was one of the early deacons, and that um, although he was recognized as a believer and set up as a leader in the church. He actually defected from the faith later, was an apostate, and led people astray. Um, As far as what they were teaching, it's hard to know for sure, other than it seems like from chapter 2 of Revelation that when they infiltrate the church at Pergamum, I believe, um, that the problem is they lead them into paganism and immorality which very well could be the seeds for for the the early Roman Catholic Church it's hard to it's hard to say but i yeah i um I, I don't know um exactly where all that um came from but as i mentioned with the the beginning of bishops the the role of the bishop or the presbyter which really were positions that came about after the apostles were there there's no record of a bishop or in the sense that they, that they use a bishop or a presbyter um, in the New Testament. So that was something that came about afterwards as a way to try to handle some um, some situations, circumstances that are going on in the church, a way to control more than just one locale, but, but a, a larger group.
1: Right. But, you know, we talked about the idea that Jesus had the last supper of washing all his disciples' feet. And then just the discussion of whether a bishop or presbyter had this much power over the church, it it seems kind of obvious to me that if they're talking about how much power they have at that time, then it's obviously not something that's biblical because it's not a model that Christ had
0: the last supper. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep, Ken.
1: Just a real quick thing. Dr. McEwen talking about the beginning of this question was taking the Greek word and trying to take that apart. Dr. McEwen said that the apostles wrote in Greek, and they Mm -hmm. thought in Hebrew, and there's a difference in the words a lot of times. Hmm. Yeah. Bill. Right
0: right. sometimes you know his attack is is overt, it is very obvious it's it's a paganism at at its uh clearest, other times it's covert, and I think that's what Bill's point is is that he takes the truth and he mixes it with a lie, and so you see the truth in it, and you say, "Well, maybe that is." What that, maybe that is what's from God. Isn't that what He did with Adam and Eve? They were uh, He was questioning them with regard to what God had said, and so it sounded as if this serpent was a servant of God in the sense that He was coming down and speaking on behalf of God. They took it as that, and uh, they missed the the lie that was mixed in there. You will not surely die, um, and that that is that is true. All right. Yes. <laughs> Welcome.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Mhm. um, Mhm. Um, live,
0: and that's an every day. Mhm. That we should live by truth and faith. Yeah. Yep. Requires both, um, Faith in what God has um, provided for us, and obviously um, an understanding and belief in what He has told us. So, let's move on now to the church fathers. Um, after the death of the apostles, other lead- leaders emerged to take their place. We call these um, these people the church fathers because, in many ways, they developed doctrine that that we now hold. Much of their um, much of m- m- Probably a, a portion of what they have taught and stood for. Two of the earliest known um, fathers were called apostolic fathers because they were direct disciples of the apostles, um, and those two are Ignatius and Polycarp. Ignatius was a pastor in the church at Antioch in the early second century. Um, Roman authorities under the emperor at that time, Trajan, captured him and brought him to Rome, and what Um, what we know about his life is that he left seven letters that he wrote to various churches during his trip to Rome, which is where he would be martyred. Ignatius um, argued that there should be only one pastor over each congregation, that there should not be this office of bishop uh, where a person rules over them. Instead, um, he also argued that there was not to be a plurality of elders in the sense that we know about it today. There's still lots of churches that still practice that today. Um, Ignatius was so determined to authenticate his faith because he strongly believed in the idea that those who are true believers will suffer persecution. He was so uh, determined to authenticate his faith by dying for Christ that when he arrived to Rome... He begged the church not to do anything to stop him from being killed by Rome. Um, this wasn't a, um, you know, this wasn't an attempt for of his at suicide. He recognized what he was doing, but but uh, he he also recognized that he was willing to die for the sake of Christ. That was Ignatius. Before his death, one of his letters was sent to another early church father named Polycarp. Perhaps you've heard of him. Polycarp was. The and a disciple of the Apostle John who we're studying about in the book of Revelation in uh, in the morning services. Uh, Polycarp was a pastor at the church in Smyrna, which was one of the letters uh, that was written in Revelation chapter 2. Polycarp also wrote several letters, um, but the story of his martyrdom we read two classes ago it was uh, as he was standing before these these leaders he said this fire will be extinguished this fire that's going to kill me will be extinguished but there is a fire that you know nothing about and is a fire of god's judgment that will come upon all those who disobey him who who turn from him defect from him and um and so he uh like Ignatius was one of the early martyrs of the Christian Church many of the churches in the um, second and third centuries focused on intellectualism or philosophy they they worked to they would be in debates with these pagan philosophers trying to prove that that God was true and that his word was true and what they what they are called are apologists they are defenders of the faith so that when someone brought a charge against them, they were able to defend it. That word apologist comes from the word in First um, Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, I believe it is, where it says that that um, we should always be ready to give an answer um, and, uh, and and to give a hope or a reason for the hope that is within us. And that word in the verse, I believe that that's translated answer for us um, is the word apolog- apologist. Or the word we draw the word apologist from, that we are defenders of the faith. the most uh, prominent of these phlo- or these ones who argued with the philosophers was a man by the name of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was an early leader of the Eastern Church, and uh, if you were paying attention earlier, you know that the Eastern Church pulled away from the Western Church, the Church at Rome, because they believed that Rome did not have the final authority. And so Justin Martyr pulled away from them, and um, he was actually not a believer from his youth. He became a, a believer later in life. He was in his young adulthood. He was a a pagan philosopher, and um, and he uh, was from Palestine. Well, one day while he was on the sea, on a seashore meditating, a stranger came up and pointed out the fault of his thinking and pointed him to the Jewish prophets and their witness of Christ and so, as a result, Justin came to know Christ as a Savior. He um, became convinced convinced of Christ being Lord, and that was that happened about A.D. 132. So, after the time he from the time he got saved, he worked hard to understand and know the Scriptures, and then also to prove the Scriptures to these other pagan philosophers from which he came. And uh, so that was kind of his um his mission in life after he came to Christ and uh he worked hard to focus on Christ being the word the as John 1 talks about where he is the word that has became, become flesh that he is the exact representation of God he he's the perfect representation of God and um of course he uh earned his name uh, or his name later came to be known as those who die for Christ because, in fact, he was beheaded as a result of his stand for Christ. He was a, uh, a martyr in that sense. Um, another eloquent person who defended his faith was uh, Athenagoras of Athens. He also knew what was going on in all the pagan philosophies, and so he contended for Christianity because it was based on the direct revelation of God rather than on speculations. Um, additionally, he tried to prove that their pagan gods were false because those pagan gods came from humans and humans are, um, are inadequate and juvenile. And so if those gods came from us who are inadequate, then, then how can they have any power over us? Only the God of the Bible is supreme. And so he did much to defend the faith. Um but at at time he did concede to some Greek philosophical talk and um and he made God out to be more of a philosophical idea rather than the Lord of the universe. And so um what you're going to find in a lot of these church fathers as I mentioned earlier is that they don't have a a perfect theology that that there are places where um where they uh where they are unorthodox, we could say. Um, The next leader we want to talk about is one from the West named Irenaeus. He studied under Polycarp, who was the disciple of John, as I mentioned. And uh, Irenaeus was a pastor at the church in Lyons in A.D. 177. Um, He directed most of his writings and his debates against Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a brand new idea that had come up from the Greek philosophers that said um, that the body is evil and the spirit is good. So it doesn't matter how you live in your body. And um, so he responded in probably his most famous work called Against Heresies by saying that, that uh, this Gnosticism was, was not in fact true. He also, um, he also opposed the heresy of apostolic succession. Okay, we still have people in churches who believe in apostolic succession. That is, that Peter handed down the keys of the kingdom down to, or, or the keys to the church, he handed it down to the next, his disciple, and then his disciple, and his disciple. And the disciple that now holds those keys today is who? Anybody know? Right, the Pope. It is the Pope. What's his name? Benedict. Um, um, and, and so, they have this idea of apostolic succession. Well, Irenaeus did not believe that this was true, based on his understanding of the scriptures, and rightfully so, he believed that the sole key uh, to the church came from the scriptures, and um, and uh, ultimately against Gnosticism, he taught that that the the that really the the pinnacle of of history was when Christ became flesh. So, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that the body is evil and the spirit is good. Now, they would later come up with a, w- a way to to push that away and say that Christ really didn't take on flesh for His entire life. He just took it on at baptism and then He left His body. Uh, once He got to the cross, He he wasn't resurrected or anything like that. Um, but Arrhenius worked hard in the early days of that that. Pagan, or maybe not pagan, maybe heretical belief would be a better way to say it. And um, unfortunately for him, he believed that, that Rome was the final rule. And although he didn't believe in apostolic succession, he was actually one of the guys who helped push that apostolic succession to where it is today. Tertullian was the next guy we want to talk about. That's the pastor of the church in Carthage. Um, he... Uh, wrote extensively in Latin and developed much of the language that we have in our theology today. For example, he came up with the term Trinitas, which is the term from which we get Trinity. Um, Obviously, that doctrine is in the Scriptures, but the word Trinity is not used. I hope you understand it's not in the Scriptures. He he called Trinitas, one substance, the, the nature of God, that He is one substance and three persons. And so he wrote a masterpiece called The Apology in which he used precise legal reasoning to argue to Roman officials that Christians should be tolerated, that they actually have value. Um, and he's also the one who is the, the person who coined the phrase that you probably know today. Uh, Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is what? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You heard that one before? That's Tertullian. He says, The blood of the Mars is the sea of the church, um, showing that that doesn't matter what you do to believers, to the church of Jesus Christ, it will not be stopped. Like Jesus said, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Tertullian believed that and uh and taught that. But unfortunately he took a, a um a bad turn in A D two twenty and he joined a heretical sect called the montanists and they claimed to be the mouthpiece mouthpiece of the holy spirit that that the scriptures alone were not sufficient that there was still some way in which the the holy spirit spoke through individuals that is that that we could receive direct revelation from god apart from the scriptures and um there are still churches today that believe that sort of thing as well you see that in the Apostolic and the Pentecostal churches, and uh, so unfortunately, that's how Tertullian ended up um, adopting that sort of mindset and and promoting it. So again, remind, we need to be reminded that these early church fathers are not perfect; they they are not exempt from extreme error, just like we are not. Okay, at any time we could we could. Uh, Focus on something that we shouldn't, or that we shouldn't put as much attention on, and we could make that the highlight of our ministry. And uh, as a result, we could turn from the orthodox beliefs of the Scripture. Another Eastern father was a man who trained in philosophy. His name was Clement of Alexandria. He was influenced by Justin Martyr and he also tried to reconcile two worlds. He tried to persuade Christians that Greek philosophy actually had some value and he tried to persuade Greek philosophers that Christianity had value. So he's trying to stand in the middle a little bit. And this led him to invent the notion of purgatory, which was a place that he called a place to cleanse the soul. And obviously this, Idea would be adopted later by the Roman Catholic Church and still promoted today. Clement didn't see the Scriptures as literal as we see them. He saw much of them as allegorical, or just it's just a picture of of other things that are going on. It's not to be taken literally. And so as a result, there were many weaknesses in his thought. And he served uh, Alexandria, or he served in Alexandria as pastor until A.D. 202 when he was forced to flee the persecution that came from the city or in that city. Well, when that persecution finally passed, a man by the name of Origen, who was a disciple of Clement, um, became pastor in Alexandria. And Origen was much better than his, his, uh, his mentor, I guess you could say, Clement. Origen was one of the most towering figures in the history of the church. And uh, he produced the greatest work of scholarship in the early church, a massive work that he he called the Hexapla, which is an early parallel Bible in that word you hear, hex, which is what number? Six, Six, right? So, it's actually a parallel Bible of the Old Testament, parallel Old Testament with a Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, a Hebrew translation or Hebrew uh, manuscript or, or copy, and then and then also five greek translations that five different ones and he had them all there in a line in fact you could go on the internet and see a picture of what that looks like he was the first to describe the office of the bishop of Rome as the chair of peter because he was trying to um connect the apostolic authority that was at rome with with the heresy that was was going on and he um obviously this would would uh later lay the foundation for modern papacy. During the persecution of Decius, cyprian uh, I, I skipped ahead to Cyprian, excuse me, um, back to Origen, he um, <coughs> he made the first attempt at a systematic theology, Origen did. So in addition to this huge, massive work of the Old Testament, I mean, imagine just making one copy of the Old Testament. <coughs> he did it in six uh, different versions <coughs> in order to show the differences there. Um, but in addition to that, he also designed or, or developed the first systematic theology where he tried to come up with different topics of theology and put them into categories. Okay, so doctrine of God, doctrine of sin, doctrine of salvation, so on. And um, so he died around 254 under the persecution of Decius. And Cyprian um, was also a Western early church father. He... Um, came to a place of great emphasis on the unity and the authority of the church. He was the first, He, I said origin was, but this is actually Cyprian, who was the first to describe the chair of Peter, uh, which is connecting the the leader of the church in Rome with Peter, the apostle, and that, that would later lay the foundation for modern papacy. So Cyprian uh, didn't help a whole lot in that area. During the persecution of Decius, Cyprian rejected people from rejoining the church who had fallen into sin. So, if you sinned, uh, if Cyprian were the pastor of this church, if you sinned and and, uh, and were disciplined out of the church, you would be unable to join the church or any church that he had authority over. And uh, <clears throat> and um, in fact, he came up with a statement in one of his writings later on that says this. There is no salvation outside the church. Okay? There's no salvation outside the church. So, although I don't know Cyprian would go as far as to say that um, you have to earn your salvation, he would lay the groundwork for those who who um, basically have to buy indulgences later on in the 1500s. You remember that? people in Luther's days were buying indulgences. They were buying uh, graces from God. They were trying to to buy God's grace. And um, this seems to lay the groundwork. He died in A.D. 258. Well, um, Christ certainly has given us the Word in His Scriptures. And He has given His uh, He has allowed us to be a part of His body. And He has given us a Spirit through Spirit baptism and Lord's Supper and all these things other things, but as the early church started to grow, it actually started grow in breadth. It, it, it's expanded around the world. Um, it also grew in errors and division. And uh, so we must also or always make sure that we're putting our faith in Christ and not in other Christians. Sometimes we patronize these early church fathers as if they're inerrant. that you know, let me see what we need to understand. So let's go to the early church fathers. And I think there is value in looking at the early church fathers. I don't want to dismiss that because uh, sometimes we come up with theologies that have already been dismissed in those early churches, but you have to recognize that they were not perfect. And we should also recognize that the the body as a whole is supposed to preserve biblical truth. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and support of the truth that that the way that doctrine is held and upheld and maintained is through the church. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says Jude's talking to believers, contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that we've been studying, it's addressed to churches, not just to one person. So the way that doctrine is is held and made sure that it's it's uh it's not abandoned, it's not Uh, mixed with error, is through the local church. So that requires that each of us must take ownership in what is being taught in this church. Alright, I've uh, spent plenty of time talking, so let me uh, pray and then we'll um, be dismissed. Father, thank You for um, Your grace and providing us with Your Word, thankful uh, most of all for Jesus Christ, but also for how He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And we're thankful that we have a written copy of it. That we have a, a copy that has um, been faithfully translated and and preserved for us so that we can trust in it. And we're thankful that, um, that You have left that with us. And while there is a sense in which we need to um, obey and submit to our leaders, there's also a sense in which we need to have a healthy um, a healthy critical eye uh, that we need to make sure that we're understanding and following the Scriptures most of all, not a, a given person. And um, in a day with so many prominent church leaders and people who can expose and present the truth very well, it's very easy to fall into that trap and to base our theology on what one person says. But I pray that You'd help us to most of all be concerned with what Your Word says, and then uh, check, uh, uh, use these men who and, and women who have uh, studied the Scriptures as a way to help um, strengthen our faith, not to uh, make them the object of our faith. Help us now in this service to follow to honor You and to give praise to Your name because of all that You do for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So she just gave you that stuff early, Mary. The
1: oh,
0: yeah
1: hey, I belong, I'm